and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Caroline Malik Corbin, Professor of Law and Dean's Distinguished Scholar at the University of Miami School of Law. We will discuss her article, Trump's Lies, the Unconstitutionality of Government Propaganda, which will be published in the Ohio State Law Journal. So welcome to the show, Caroline. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm glad you came on. This is a really um, timely paper for uh, many different reasons. Um, But for listeners who might not be kind of First Amendment familiar or First Amendment scholars uh, or kind of up to snuff on First Amendment doctrine, I I wonder if we kind of situate the, the problem that you're addressing within that field. So... So you're arguing in your paper that the First Amendment should limit different kinds of – or particular kinds of, of government speech. Um, why would that be a controversial position? I mean, has the First Amendment historically limited government speech at all? So it's radical for at least two reasons, one of which is under current – First Amendment doctrine, the free speech clause does not actually apply to government speech. So one of the novel things I am arguing for is that with regard to government propaganda, it should. And the second rather unexpected argument that I'm making, uh, or some might say bonkers, is that I'm actually making an argument that the free speech clause requires some censorship of speech, which is quite the opposite of how most people generally think about speech. Well, maybe you could expand on on both of those kind of one at a time. So, I mean, why is it that historically um, government speech hasn't been been limited? Well, our general understanding of the First Amendment is that it is designed to protect private individuals from the government. And therefore, it is viewed as protecting private speakers from the government. And them, it is not meant to protect the government itself. And so just the basic idea as the First Amendment on a limit of government can do to private individuals means it doesn't apply. Um, and so that's sort of that's what the Supreme Court is right now when it comes to government speech. It is simply lies outside of the free speech clause. Mm, well, so maybe you could talk a little bit about why you think certain categories of speech really ought to potentially be within the scope of regulation. I mean, specifically, you argue that government propaganda violates or potentially violates the free speech clause. I mean, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you define propaganda and and why you think it's a problem. Sure. So let me just say, um, and sort of the bigger picture reason why I'm arguing is that um, sort of the free speech clause is designed, we generally understand the free speech clause as the flow of information from 
government, right? And so it's all about, generally we talk, think about it's protecting private speakers and their ability to contribute to the marketplace of opinion. And we sort of need this free flow of opinions in order to, pre, in order to sort of further our search for knowledge and also, especially in order to have a democratic form. Right? And government usually meddles with this free flow of speech by censoring private speakers. That's what I started out. If we generally think of laws as protecting against government censorship of private speech. I'm sort of arguing another way that the government can interfere with this free flow of information is by sort of poisoning the stream of speech. And I think that's what government propaganda does. And when I talk about government propaganda, to get to your more particular question, how am I defining it? I'm defining it more narrowly than we might generally think of government propaganda. But generally, I would say propaganda has a couple of core characteristics. One of them is that it's designed to benefit the speaker, not the audience. And the second sort of crucial component of propaganda is that it's manipulative, is that it intentionally manipulates its audience. And there are a lot of different ways a speaker can manipulate the audience. It can do that by appealing to baser emotions. Um, it can do that by exploiting predictable cognitive errors. I'm focusing on some, I'm focusing only on sort of manipulation by lying. So I am defining government propaganda for purposes of this paper as speech by the government that involves a verifiably false or misleading statement of fact. It's on a matter of public concern and force the speaker knows or has a strong reason to suspect that what they're saying is false. So again, it has four components. The government is speaking. It's a verifiably false or misleading statement of fact. It's on a matter of public concern. And the speaker knows or strongly suspects that it's false. Well, so maybe you could give some particularized examples of a kind of government speech that you think might be the kind of propaganda that you're talking about that might be properly objectionable? And then maybe an example of something that that might be objectionable but wouldn't fall into the kind of First Amendment free speech. Fair enough. All right. So, um, wow, there's so many to choose from. Um, so there's sort of the, I have sort of pre-coronavirus examples and coronavirus examples. So a pre-coronavirus example of something the government might say that's verifiably false is we have no policy of separating families at the border. Right? It's a statement of fact. It's verifiably false. As we now know, it was on a matter of public interest and they knew it was false when they said it. Uh, a more recent example might be Trump's claim that, um, well, let's see. I was going to say it could either be anyone who wants a test can get a test, or I think, uh, how about this one? 
I think this is from the better example. Um, his claim that the FDA has approved a particular drug to treat patients infected with coronavirus and that they therefore have a cure available. Um, it's false. You, it's, you know, there's, it's, it was, uh, I'm, I'm sure his advisors made clear to him that there was no cure yet available. Uh, it's obviously on a matter of public concern and he was speaking in his official capacity to the public. I would deem that to be propaganda. What would not be propaganda, on the other hand, are, at least under my working definition, are sort of just uh, racist statements. Um, I think there's plenty, I, I'd rather not repeat them all, but I think we're probably familiar with a, uh, a long list of sort of straight up racist comments coming from the current administration that would, in a broader definition, be considered propaganda, um, but would not fall within my definition because I am focusing on false statements of fact. Well, so how would a traditional First Amendment analysis respond to those statements? And why do you think that analysis is inadequate? Um, so the traditional First Amendment response to problematic government speech, this is what the Supreme Court says, is if you don't like what the government is saying, um, there's the political process. Remedy is the political process. If you don't like what the government is saying, then you should elect a new government. Because again, under current doctrine, the free speech clause does not reach government speech. So the remedy lies not with the free speech clause, it lies with the political process. Um, the problem with this argument when we're dealing with government speech is the point of government propaganda is to disrupt and undermine that process, right? So again, thinking back to one of the reasons we protect speech is to promote our democratic form of government. In other words, <laughs> right, the, the, the people in power govern by the consent of the, of the government, um, but in order for that consent to be valid, we kind of need to know what our government's policies are and what our government officials have been doing. Um, government propaganda sort of prevents us from receiving the accurate information that we need. And so the argument that you can rely on the political process doesn't hurt government propaganda. So, so one of the things I thought was interesting about the paper is that it, it seems like what you're proposing is a kind of listener-focused uh, approach to thinking about freedom of speech, maybe in addition to a speaker-focused approach to, to speech. And I wonder if you could talk about, like, is there a precedent for that? in First Amendment doctrine? And like, what might you point to as other examples of a similar way of thinking about this particular issue? Yeah, I think that is a very fair point. I think for most people, when they think about the First Amendment, 
the paradigmatic example that comes to mind is the government is censoring you from speaking and you feel like the government is interfering with your right to say what you want. Um, and the free speech clause is meant to protect that. And that is absolutely one of the traditional goals of the free speech clause is to allow you that freedom to say what you like. But actually the two, there's sort of three classic justifications for why we protect free speech. One of them is that right to self-expression that I just talked about. But the other two, uh, which is, uh, which are first creating ideas in our search for knowledge, and two, when I mentioned, which is to promote democratic self-governance, if you think about these other long-standing justifications for the free speech clause, they are actually pretty audience-focused, right? When we talk about a marketplace idea, we're talking about the right of listeners to access these opinions and information. So that justification is actually audience-focused. And when we're talking about the importance of having a free flow of information to make sure our consent is valid and to ensure accountability of our elected officials, that one too is audience-focused. It's about making sure the voters have the information they need in order to vote wisely. So it's actually not at all a novel view of the First Amendment, because if you look at the very traditional justifications for them, two out of three of them are really more audience-focused than speaker-focused. So I'm actually building on classic uh, free speech theory in making this argument. Mm. Well, so it's interesting because my impression has always been that kind of free speech theory has largely sort of assumed that by focusing on freedom of speaker expression, we ultimately get a bunch of the other kinds of benefits that you refer to. But you point to the commercial speech doctrine as an area where there's more kind of speaker-focused regulation and more of a focus on the interests of the listener. And I, I wonder if you could like talk a little bit about how the commercial speech doctrine works uh, in your argument as an analogy to the kind of regulation oh, sure. that you're talking about. Yeah, it's a sort of um, the original justification for protecting commercial speech was not that it would be to protect the right of corporations to express themselves. In some sense, it doesn't even make sense when you're not dealing with an actual person. The justification that it's important that consumers get the information they were offering in order to make their own decisions and to make informed political decisions about commercial matters. So the justific original justification for protecting commercial speech was more about ensuring audiences access to certain types of information. And so, again, I'm saying this is nothing new in free speech jurisprudence to really focus on free speech as protecting a flow of information for audiences. Well, it's also been my impression that kind of more recent versions or developments in the commercial speech doctrine have 
have kind of started to disaggregate the commer- the commercial elements of that speech from the expressive elements of that speech. And I wonder if that tracks onto the distinction that you're trying to make in relation to government propaganda. Um, I'm not quite sure whether you're talking about commercial speech, i.e. advertisements, or whether you're also thinking more broadly about corporate speech, which is the right of corporations to make, to sort of contribute to the marketplace ideas. They're slightly distinct things. Well, I I was thinking more of just commercials in general, in the sense that, you know, there's a certain kind of speech that's promote, that's kind of proposing a transaction or something. And, and we expect that yeah. to be truthful, right? Whereas other uh-huh. kinds of kind of commercial speech elements might be communicating ideas or values of various kinds. And those are entitled to at least arguably more different kind of protection than the kinds of commercial speech that are purely kind of making factual claims about a product. Exactly. And I would just point out there is, again, the original justification for protecting corporate corporations political speech was, again, not that corporations have some autonomy interest in expressing their views about political matters. It was, again, focused on the audience right to receive information regardless of what the source was. So that's not an answer to your most recent question. It's an answer to your earlier question is, are there other areas of free speech that support this audience-focused approach to the First Amendment? So when we're thinking about government speech, I mean, how do we know when speech is government speech? I mean, in your paper, you talk primarily about the kind of statements made by Donald Trump or people associated with President Trump in different contexts. How do we know when when Trump speaks, whether he's speaking on behalf of the government or on behalf of himself. And, you know, when it comes to government officials, is there any real distinction between the two? Um, Yeah. So the first requirement is that it actually be the government speaking. Uh, And so the first question is, is this private speech or government speech? And it can be a complicated question. In fact, One of my earliest papers really looked at the problem of trying to categorize all speech as either private or governmental, when in fact, sometimes there's a mix or two. But I think for purposes of this paper, I really focused on speech that was pretty uncontroversial of governments. So when you have a government official at a press conference making statements to the public on matters uh, of policy, I think that's pretty uncontroversially government speech. So it can be a difficult question. I don't think it's a difficult question for the kinds of examples that I have. Mm. Well, so, you know, one question I has like how this would apply more broadly, because I think a lot of people sort of have kind of Trump on the mind right now, as it were, and are distressed or disturbed by you know, some of the ways that the president has approached uh, government messaging, as it were. I mean, do you think some of the concerns that you express in the paper would apply to previous administrations as well, e- even in like a limited way? I mean, you know, even if 
even if the current administration has engaged in a lot of the kind of government propaganda, which you find uh, objectionable and think ought to be subject to limitations under the First Amendment, are there you know, maybe any examples of speech by other administrations that might fall, uh, fall afoul of the similar kinds of objections? Um, I, I have to confess, I, I can't imagine having written this paper under uh, the previous administration. This paper was most definitely inspired by the current administrations whose lies are so overwhelming and so often repeated that the traditional fact-checking sort of organizations, like they had to create a new category for him, um, right? The, the, the Washington Post, their fact check, they, had, they created something called the bottomless Pinocchio for the lies that he repeats again and again and again and again. Um, so um, it, it's, I'm sh- it's possible um, that it would apply in, to other administrations, but not even close to the degree that it applies to the current one, um, because he really is um, lies with such abandon on so many matters of public concern um, that he really has not just persuaded a lot of people that what he is saying is true, but I think he has destabilized the truth in a way that no previous administration has done. So part of the point of propaganda is not just to get the audience to believe a particular lie, it's also to make the audience struggle with accepting the truth. So if you flood the information space with lie after lie after lie after lie, and people are just constantly presented with clashing visions of reality, it gets to the point where people no longer feel capable of distinguishing truth from falsity. And so this makes them even more primed um, to accept sort of lies um, and also to reject truth if they do come across it. And so I think the problem with this administration is one that we really, I, I, I just don't think we've seen this kind of intentional destabilization of truth that we've seen in other administrations. Mm-hmm. Well, so we, one question I had when I was reading your paper was sort of when a government speech falls afoul of the kinds of limitations that you propose what happens and who does it? Yeah. So I must confess this was more a theoretical piece than a nuts and bolts piece of how to actually implement it. 
I really wanted people to understand that there was more than one way to violate the free speech laws. And it wasn't just by censoring speakers. It was also by looting the stream of information with false information. Like the government can harm our speech in more than one way. That was really my main objection. But like, how would this happen? I give it a bit as an, uh, sort of like the emoluments clause, right? It's a limit on what the government can do. Um, it's not necessarily so easy to implement, but someone could have standing, just as someone could have standing for uh, a president violating the emoluments clause. So for example, that lie that Trump said about um, this drug has been approved for treating the coronavirus, people have been harmed by that lie, right? There's definitely people who have standing. There's both the people who took the drug and became sick. And now that everyone has been buying it up, so there's a shortage, there are people who need the drug. For example, people who have lupus, I think, need the drug, who can't get access to it, right? So, so those are the people who might have standing. So you could imagine a lawsuit, or you could imagine it also as like a basis for impeachment. But the main point I wanted to make is this is meant as a limit on what the government can do vis-a-vis uh, -vis speech. Mm -hmm. Well, so, so in Carolyn, in, in closing, I, I, I guess the sort of big picture question I really had when it came to, to your piece, which, you know, and I'll confess, you know, I find a lot of, of your concerns compelling and obviously find a lot of the examples of government speech you refer to in the piece pretty troubling. But part of me wonders like whether this is a legal problem or a political problem, or I guess on, to put it another way is like, is this a free speech problem or is it a democracy problem? And how should we think about sort of what angle we want to approach kind of thinking about this issue from a sort of holistic philosophical perspective about our kind of goals and values and what we're trying to accomplish. Yeah, it's obviously not only a constitutional problem. It is clearly also a political problem, but uh, I'm a First Amendment scholar. So I was writing about it from um, from the free perspective. And I think it is also a free speech precisely because one of the core goals of free speech is to ensure that we have a functioning democracy, right? Again, we don't have a democracy that works. People are able to hold those in power accountable for their actions. If we don't have a free flow of helpful, accurate information and government propaganda prevents that from happening. We can't hold our government officials accountable if we don't know what they've done, and if we're voting for them based on lies that we have fed, that they have fed us, then we don't have a working democracy. Can I, can I raise one more question? Of course. So, because the one thing that any, anyone who 
is in his speech uh, must be thinking is that how can you possibly argue um, for the free speech clause to censor speech? Right. Generally, in the free speech world, if you encounter problematic speech, the argument is the remedy is not censorship, the remedy is more speech. And one of the reasons people are so wary of regulating speeches anyway is because they're worried about sort of, uh, it, it's a case where the, the, the cure can be worse than the problem. Like generally, people are really wary of saying the government can regulate speech because they're worried about, for example, the government abusing its power to regulate speech and sort of targeting people they don't like. Or they're worried about giving the government power to regulate speech because they worry it will kill people from speaking. Right. If suddenly it became illegal to say a certain, you know, intentionally lie, people might worry that, well, I don't know if people would say I'm intentionally lying or not, so I'm there on the side of caution and not say anything at all. And so that's why we often don't have free speech regulations of things that we know is really harmful speech. But I just want to... and don't apply when you're talking about government speech as opposed to speech. And I think this is a really important thing to emphasize for free people who are, as soon as they hear about, wait, you're telling the free speech should be shutting speech down, is that I'm not talking about private speakers, I'm talking about government speakers, right? So there's no risk of chilling private speakers because it applies to the government, not private individuals. And you don't have to worry about the government targeting people it doesn't like because the government is the target, not private speakers. Right? We're not dealing with a, a potential abuse of power of the government. It's an actual abuse of power by the government. Right. So this is not a tool that the government is going to use, abuse. This is a tool to kind of deal with government abuse. Of course. Yeah. Thank you. That's very helpful. Um, well, so Caroline, thank you so much for coming on the program. It was a pleasure talking to you. And uh, uh, I encourage listeners to check out your article, which includes many, many examples of the kinds of speech that you're talking about uh, in this piece and that we've discussed in this interview. Thank you so much for having me. It was loads of fun. are nothing more than candy-coated lies. You make some pretty speeches, but all your pretty speeches always sound like candy-coated lies. 
Told me fables by the hour And I was taken in But now they've all turned sour The candy's getting mighty thin I don't want any more I wouldn't give up any For your kisses or your candy-coated lies Wrapped up in your candy-coated life. 